wait, I don't got it. I'm still learning the steps. Because being on your own is a, not a great place to be. And actually, being on your own could be pretty scary. But so now imagine the disciples. As they are where we left them at the end of chapter 1, or at the beginning of the book of Acts. They are filling on their own. Jesus had just left them. They had just spent at least three years following and learning from Jesus. Jesus had taught them how to do the ministry. He even sent them out, but they, he was with them. They were learning from him. But now they saw him ascend into heavens, and they feel like they're on their own. Yeah, they have each other's, but Jesus is not there to show them the ropes anymore. you got to imagine being in their shoes. That would be a scary place to be, to be on their own without their Lord still teaching them. And then when we think about the Christian life and we think about ourselves, we realize that on our own, we can't do it. We can't actually live out Christianity, our belief, faithfully on our own. We can't do discipleship because our discipleship on our own seems impossible. Understanding the word would be a feat if we're just by ourselves. Sharing the faith, forget about it if we were on our own. Having unity among even just this small body? No, I don't think so. We would quickly break into factions if we were just on our own. Being on your own is a scary place to be. And you can imagine that's what the disciples were feeling. But, thankfully, they had the promise from Jesus that they wouldn't stay on their own long. Thankfully, they had to promise that Jesus was going to send the Holy Spirit to them that would now connect them to him and so that they, he would always be present in their life. Thankfully, they had this promise that Jesus talked about in the Gospel of John particularly about how he's going to send another comforter and this comforter would teach them his ways and make sure that they would always be connected to God. And that is what we see in Acts chapter 2. That these final words of Jesus, when he promises them power for the, to fulfill his commands, when he promises them the Holy Spirit will come upon them, we see the final words of Jesus realized with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So you have your Bibles? You can turn to chapter 2 of the book of Acts, and if you don't, it will be on the screen as we read the first 13 uh, verses. It starts like this. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Perthions and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, uh, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, 
and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. Here is my summary of what is taking place in Acts chapter 2. That the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on believers in Christ fulfills the promise of Jesus, gives believers power, signifies God's presence, and grants believers the ability to reach the world with the gospel. But that's kind of long, so we can shorten it, make it a little bit memorable, and we can say the Holy Spirit bestows God's power for God's purposes. The Holy Spirit bestows God's power for God's purpose. And that's what we see happening in Acts 2, that God sends the Holy Spirit. And this is not new, for whenever God sent the Holy Spirit, he sent his power for his purposes to be fulfilled. If you go through the whole Bible, you see this happening again and again, that the prophets from in the Old Testament, what happens? God sends his Spirit upon them, and so now they prophesy. They bring a word from God to God's people, because that's God's power for his purposes to be explained to his people. You can see in the book of Judges, when God raises leaders from the nation to lead the nation of Israel, what does he do? He sends his Holy Spirit, and they have the power to lead people, to lead his armies, to have victory over their enemies. God's Spirit bestows God's power for God's purposes. When you look in the book of Judges, the most vivid example probably in our minds would be Samson, right? Samson, this guy who was raised up by God and even talks about how the Holy Spirit rushes upon him and then Samson starts kicking butt and taking names <laughs> because God's Spirit bestows God's power for God's purposes. And that's what we see in the book of Acts right here in Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes upon God's people, these 120 disciples, and now they have God's power to fulfill the commands he has given them to reach the nations. This is not new or abnormal, but it is unique in how it happens, and it sets the stage for all the rest of the book of Acts, and it sets the stage for all, actually, of this age we live in now, the church age, as we, too, have that. Power in God's purposes. So let's take a look at what's happening here in Acts chapter 2. It talks about how they were all together. It's talking about the 120 disciples that we left in chapter 1, that they had just picked someone else to replace Judas. And so now there's, there's 12 apostles, and now and there's 120 disciples that gathered together. And it says, the day of Pentecost arrived. And Pentecost is a feast, a celebration that was in the Jewish calendar that happened about 50 days or seven weeks after Passover, because Pentecost means 50. They're very inventive in how they name things. And so 50 days after Passover, here comes the Feast of Pentecost. And so if you think of the timeline, uh, Acts tells us and Luke tells us that Jesus, after his resurrection, which happened at Passover, or after Passover, appeared to his disciples for 40 days. And now, 50 days after Passover, here comes the Feast of Pentecost. So now, 10 days after Jesus probably ascended into heaven, around 10 days, they're all gathered together. We don't know if they were gathered together since Jesus ascended. And so for 10 days, they were in one room together. Probably not. But they were maybe making a regular case of gathering together, still being praying, waiting for this promise to happen. They were gathered together, maybe celebrating this feast 
of their, of their own faith, the Jewish faith, together at, at Pentecost. And that is when the Holy Spirit descends upon them and fulfills this promise of Jesus. And it's so interesting because Luke in Acts doesn't really pull out the significance of the happening at Pentecost, but when you look at that feast, it makes sense. For Pentecost is a harvest feast. It's called the Feast of First Fruits, where they would present two baked loaves of bread at the altar, kind of signifying here's the first fruits of the harvest to God. You can read more about that in Leviticus 23, and you can see that kind of pattern of the feast set up. And so when you start thinking what happens at Pentecost and what we know happens at the end of Acts chapter 2, when 3,000 people come to know Jesus as Lord and are baptized and are included into disciples, Man, talk about first fruits happening. Talk about how when the Spirit comes upon the disciples, fruit starts developing of their message, of the gospel message. But what's also interesting is that sometime during, after the close of the Old Testament and before the New Testament picks up, in that period of the, what's called the intertestamental period, uh, people started to associate Pentecost with an anniversary of the giving of the law with God on Mount Sinai with Moses. They started associating Pentecost, this feast, as, I, as this giving of the law. If you remember in Mount Sinai, where the, you know, the cloud descends and the Ten Commandments and the stone tablets and the golden calf, all that stuff that happens in the giving of the law. And it, it really kind of marks this old covenant, this old relationship that God has with his people. They really associated this feast, Pentecost, with that anniversary. Well, here comes the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, one of the defining markers of this new covenant that has been promised in the Old Testament, this new covenant that Jesus said he's instilling and bringing about with us. So here comes, at the anniversary of this old covenant, the new covenant taking place. Because one of the, one of the two defining markers of this new covenant that God would have with his people is he said, I will give my spirit to you. And that he also said that I will... Put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, which is what the Holy Spirit does. And so it's hard to think that it's just coincidence in this kind of double fulfillment way that God chose Pentecost for the day the Spirit came down. So our God is not a God of disorder. He knows what he's doing. And while Luke doesn't make a big deal about that double fulfillment, I think we can see the significance of God choosing Pentecost, this, fel- this feast, this celebration, for his purposes. There's also the great purpose of this feast that happens around the beginning of June every year was one of the most well-attended feasts of the Jewish nation, which means all these Jews that have been dispersed throughout this, the Roman Empire were now coming back to celebrate because it was the easiest one to travel for. And I don't think that's coincidence. So now you have all these people gathered together now to hear the proclaiming of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So that's what's happening as we see here in Pentecost. But we're going to just take a moment and we're going to really dial down on these three signs that happen when the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples. That we see the rushing wind, the the sound like a rushing wind, and we see these divided tongues of fire resting on each of them, and we see them speak and these, th- these three signs signify and show God's power being used for God's purposes. 
So let's take a look at this. They're gathered together, and it says, A sound like a, right, a mighty rushing wind fills the entire house. Have you guys ever heard a really rushing wind? It was windy this weekend, but have you ever heard wind moving in power? It's crazy, isn't it? And this sign of wind actually signifies God's power, because if you know wind, it's a powerful element. And if you've ever been in a windstorm, you've seen its power played out. If you've ever seen what happens when a tornado comes, which is just wind going in a circle, you see the power it has. I remember I was hiking once when I was in high school, and we were hiking up a mountain, and we got up to the peak of the mountain, and, the, and there's nothing to stop the wind at the top of the mountain. And the wind was just blowing so hard. It's like you could lean forward and not even go anywhere because the wind was just blowing so hard. That I even huddled behind a rock and, and trying to get out of the wind's path, and yet it, you could still feel the wind's power. So when we see the mighty rushing wind, and it causes a sound, and it's rattling the house probably, there was immense power coming upon the disciples that this signified God's power was at work. And to combine it to the fact that wind, this word for wind, is synonymous with the Holy Spirit and throughout the Bible, that in the Hebrew, the ruah, wind, is used for the Holy Spirit, and in Greek, pneuma is used for the Holy Spirit. This word meaning wind. And so we see how this is signifying that when God's Spirit comes down, it brings God's power with it. And the, and the disciples feel this. Maybe the most vivid example of this we have in the whole Bible is Ezekiel's vision of the, va- the Valley of Dry Bones. If you don't remember, it's Ezekiel, a prophet from the Old Testament. He has this vision of this valley that's filled with these dry bones. They're dead. These are dead people. All of a sudden, a mighty rushing wind comes down the valley and clothes these dry bones in flesh and brings these people back to life. And it's very clearly this is an image for what the Holy Spirit does, the power of God does. And so we see a reflection in here, the, the power of God descending upon this, this little house at the Feast of Pentecost, and this brings God's power. And the sound of the rushing wind, the power of the Holy Spirit gives, is that fulfillment of Jesus' last words to the disciple. When we think even in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 24, 49, Jesus told him, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is what's happening. They're being clothed with power from on high. Or you can even think Acts 1.8 that we read a couple weeks ago about how he said you will receive power when the Holy Spirit descends upon you. This is what is happening. This first sign of this mighty rushing wind is a sign showing that when the Holy Spirit comes, God's power comes with him to his disciples. But it's not just the wind. Something else happens. It says, these divided tongues of fire appear and now settle on each one of them. And this fire signifies the presence of God. For when you look at how fire is used throughout the the Bible, you see again and again that the fire is used for the presence of God. We can think about the burning bush, about Moses sees this bush that's burning but it's not consumed, and he wanders up to it, and a voice speaks from the bush and says, take off your sandals for where you stand is holy. Why? Because he's in the presence of God. We can think about how God led the Israelites through the desert 
at night by a pillar of fire, about when he descended upon the temple, it was with this light, this, this, this fire, about how even on Mount Sinai, when he speaks to Moses, a consuming fire comes down. Again and again through the Bible, we see fire denotes the presence of God. And that's what we see here. When the Holy Spirit descends upon disciples, God's presence is there because the Holy Spirit is God. And this is not a general vision of God's presence coming to a temple or leading the people as a group. It says that divided and settled on each one of them. Not just the 12, not just the inner core, but all 120 believers sitting in that room together, the Holy Spirit came and descended as these tongues of fire upon each and every one of them, showing that the Spirit of God and God's presence through the Spirit now rests on each believer individually. And this is the emphasis we see in the book of Acts from now on, that through the Spirit, every believer has a relationship with Jesus Christ, that through the Spirit, every believer is connected to God. One commentator said this, he says, in short, our salvation is accomplished because the Son of God has come down to live among us and the Holy Spirit has come down to live within each of us. But the Son of God, Jesus, came down to secure our salvation and now the Holy Spirit comes down to live inside of us and, and apply his salvation to us. And these tongues of fire, fire also not just denotes God's presence, but it shows, it, it, it signifies purity, which is what we need to actually even be in God's presence. To be in God's presence, we need to be purified from our sins. We need to be made clean. I always think of uh, Isaiah 6, 6 and 7. If you remember that, when Isaiah sees, is caught up into heaven, he sees this grand vision of who God is and his temple and the worship that's going on, and he's talking about the mission he has, and Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And, and, but he's like, but who am I? I'm a sinner of unclean lips, from a people of unclean lips. And the angel comes and takes a coal from the altar and places it on his lips and says, here you are, you've now been purified for the mission. Your sins have now been forgiven. And so this fire denotes and shows that these believers and us have been purified for the mission of God, to be in God's presence. Which relates to how John the Baptist in Matthew uh, 3.11 looked upon Jesus and said, He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. And he's saying, we who believe in Jesus are purified baptized by fire to be refined so that now we can be in God's presence and now we can live for God. Because the Holy Spirit bestows God's power for God's purposes. And he's not done yet. He showed his power. He showed the mighty rushing wind and then the fire descends upon the disciples. But now what happens is when now we see God's purposes being played out for when the Holy Descendants Holy Spirit descends upon all disciples, they begin to speak. Because central to God's purposes is that we speak of the mighty words and works of God. 
central to what God wants us and calls us to is that we speak and declare who God is. That God's purposes are that we tell people about the salvation that Jesus Christ has secured for us. God's purposes are that we speak of the truth of who God is, of the truth of who Jesus is, of the truth of his word, of the truth of how we can be forgiven and be reconciled with our maker. That is what God's purposes are, and that's all accomplished when he sends his spirit. And through God's spirit, his people begin to speak. You can think of the Old Testament prophets and how they spoke. How could they speak God's word is that the Holy Spirit empowered them to do so, to speak it. But instead, back then, like it was just a few, now all 120 believers in Jesus Christ begin to speak. Begin to speak in languages they did not know. Begin to speak in languages that people who had traveled to Jerusalem heard and responded to. This was a strange speaking, a strange speech, a gift of being able to speak in another language. When we look out throughout the book of Acts, when people are said to speak in tongues, that's what they're doing. They're speaking in a language that they do not know, and there's no way they could probably know it, and other people do, and they respond to it. And it says that. It says, the, the, says that um, the, the, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is, wasn't some miracle where all of a sudden God changed how people were hearing the message and they heard it in their language. No, it was a miracle. They were speaking in a different language and people responded. There were people to hear that message. And we get that picture in this, in this account of that somehow... Whether it was the mighty sound of mighty rushing wind that drove the disciples out of the room, or somehow other people heard that and drawed people, drew people in, when they started to speak, people were around that heard them and responded to it. There are people around from all these other nations and cities that we read through in Acts 2, all around that came and heard and responded. And they said, how could it be that we hear in our own native tongue? These are Galileans from a little backwater of Judea that talk with an accent. And now here they are declaring the mighty works of God in our native tongue. How could this be? As they declared the mighty works of God. And it's so powerful that God chose to use these people and speak in their native languages. I'm horrible with languages. I am not gifted in that area. But the, any language I study I ever have ever done, it comes hard to me, and I have to try really hard, and I usually give up. And it's hard to even think and process in your own language. And so when you're reading another language or you're hearing another language, you have to think really hard, okay, what are they saying? What does it mean? But when someone speaks into you, with, to you with your native tongue, there's no thinking. It touches, it's like you immediately know what they're saying. And you innately respond to it. There's power in someone's native language. I've seen this firsthand. We support uh, Ted and Emily with LEI, which teaches people to read in their own languages. And, and, uh, and I think it was the summer of 2019, we took a mission trip down to Guatemala 
and we support the LAMP team, which is helping people learn to read in their native language, which down there, um, people grow up speaking mom, which is, uh, which is their language, and then they learn Spanish, and that's usually where they learn to read and write and all that stuff. And so they go back and they actually teach people how to read and mom so they can read the Bible in their own language. And I remember sitting in, in, w- in one of our little meetings, and one of the leaders of this ministry, an educated, well-spoken person, can speak mom in Spanish and some English too, and, you know, very impressive. And he's, he's reading, and we're reading a verse, and he reads it in his Spanish translation. And someone says, wait a minute, how about you read that in mom? And he reads it then in his native tongue. And he can see a transformation come over him. As you read it, his own, he almost seemed to like sink in like, oh, like as it sunk in in a way that the Spanish didn't and what people were speaking in English didn't. That his native tongue reached them in a, in a better, more deeper way. And isn't it amazing that when God starts to move and to spread his gospel, he chose that the people would hear it in their native tongue? That as they were standing in there, yeah, they probably knew Hebrew. They, were, they probably were raised on the Torah. But yes, they were in living in another culture, in another city, in another country. And so they were, grew up on another language. And so God says, they will hear my mighty works in their native tongue so that they could feel it and know it and know me because of it. That God chose to make it possible for them to respond in the easiest way possible. Because here we have God's purpose, that the world will hear about him and that he'll use his people to accomplish that. That he'll use his people to hear and respond to his language, to him, through their language. It's a great thing that we have this this purpose of God, the whole world will hear him and that his people will now not just be made of one kind of people, one kind of family, but it will be made from people from every racial background, every national background, and from every language background that people will come and know him. The Holy Spirit bestows God's power for God's this is what happens in Acts chapter 2. This is the story of what happens at this day in Pentecost. It marks a shift in redemptive history. That this is now the church age, the age of the Spirit, where each believer has the Spirit individually and he has a relationship with God individually. And that continues today. Because while the Holy Spirit has always been present, the Holy Spirit has always been at work, and we can see the Holy Spirit throughout the whole Bible. He comes now uniquely upon God's people so that God's purposes can be furthered and that God's church can expand across the world. John Stott, a pastor and um, writer, says this. He goes, without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the spirit, no Christ-likeness of character apart from his fruit, and no effective witness without his power. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the Spirit is dead. So praise be to God that he sends his Spirit to give us life, 
to connect us to him because the Holy Spirit bestows God's power for God's purpose. And the same is true for us. It's easy to look at this account, to read the book of Acts, and feel distant from it. We're distant from it in years. This happened almost 2,000 years ago. We feel pretty distant from it. We're distant from it in culture. That's a different culture. That's a different time. That's a different understanding. We feel pretty distant. We're distant from it geographically. This happened in a city that's almost halfway around the world. How does it connect with us? So it's easy to feel disconnected from this account. But the truth is that if when we come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, when we come to know Jesus Christ as the Son of God who came down, took on flesh, lived for us, died for us, rose for us, when we know the truth of who Jesus is, we receive the Holy Spirit. That we have the exact same Spirit now as they did back then. That we have the exact same Spirit coming to us, giving us the power of new life, invigorating us to live for God, giving us the ability to respond to His call, to fulfill His purposes. We have the exact same Spirit now. We might not feel like it. We can be honest. There are days when we do not feel like it at all. Days when you might feel like you're at the end of the rope or just lost or just bewildered about what life is doing and maybe even questioning where God is in the midst of it. But the truth is, if we know Christ, no matter what our feelings are telling us, the truth is that we have the Spirit and through the Spirit we have the power of God for His purposes. And through the Spirit we have everything that we need to follow him. And through the Spirit, we have God's, uh, Jesus' salvation he secured for us, applied to our life, and we have the peace that only he can give us. If we're wondering where he is, we just have to look at our life. Because if we know Christ, he's already performed one of the biggest miracles possible. For he took you, a dead sinner, and made you alive. For he took someone who's destined to be apart with God and brought him into God's family. For the Holy Spirit has taken sinners and made them saints, has taken an orphan and has given them a family, has taken a rebel and has now made them a servant. And if we're Christians, we just look at our lives and we have seen how the power of the Spirit is true. He doesn't just leave us there. He gives us everything we need, all the power we need to fulfill what God has called us to do. So that means we need, don't need to look any further. We don't need something extra or a little something else. We don't need a new revelation. We don't need to tap into a new power. We don't need to run after experiences or chase that next high. For we have all we need for life and godliness. We have everything we need because we have the Spirit and His power. Which means we also have God's presence. God is with us. Just like the, the divided tongues of fire which sets upon each of the disciples Back in Pentecost, we too have God's presence individually in our life through the Holy Spirit 
if we know Jesus Christ. Which means where we go, God goes. That there is not a place we can enter, enter where God is not present. There's not a place where we can be acting which we don't have the presence of God. At work, at home, at church, at the store, when we're online, when we're talking with our neighbors, when we're driving, and so much more, God's presence is with us. Which hopefully should mean we're comforted. That he never leaves us. He's here with us. We're never on our own. Hopefully it gives you confidence that when I am doing what God has called me to do, it's not through my own power, it's not on me, but God is with me. But really, it also challenges us. For God is always with us. God always knows. We should be living for God, and we know it. One of my favorite ministries uses the Latin phrase, quorum Dio, which means before the face of God. And it's this fact that we live life before the face of God. We live life knowing that he is here with us, looking at us, knowing us, loving us. And if we keep that in our minds, how does our life change living with knowing that he is always with us? And just like the fire in the presence of God, the fire in that presence of God means that they were purified for the mission. We can trust we too have been purified through Jesus Christ to follow him and to fulfill what he has called us to do. We have been cleansed for service. It doesn't matter your past. It doesn't matter your baggage. It doesn't matter your shortcomings or your failures that if you know Christ, you have now been purified through Christ to fulfill God's purposes for your life. So we take comfort in knowing that. We're encouraged to act on it. Because finally, just like the believers back in Pentecost have the power and the presence, we too have been given speech. Now I'm not, I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to guarantee you're going to go to a foreign nation and be able to speak their language. I'm not going to say something like this in Acts is going to happen just like that for you. But I am telling you, that you have been given holy, sanctified, and powerful speech to declare the mighty works of God, just like the disciples at Pentecost. Because when we think about the prophets of old and when we think about the apostles, what did they do? They spoke with conviction and the clarity about who God was, and they had the Holy Spirit empowering them. And guess what? You have the same. That you have the Holy Spirit within you that makes you able to speak God's truth in the ways God wants you to speak it, even though you might sound feeble or you might fumble through it. God's power is at work and he can use it in ways we can't even fathom. But that same power that they had on old is in working in us to speak boldly, confidently, clarity of who God is, of his mighty works, as the text says in, in Acts 2. And what is God's mightiest work? The salvation he brings to us through his son, Jesus Christ. The gospel, the good news. The good news that it's not about you. The good news that it's not how well you can live. It's the good news that you don't have to be good enough or perfect enough or just or have a facade on your life. No, the good news that God has saved you in spite of yourself. The good news that through Jesus Christ, 
Jesus' life that you could not live, his death that we all deserved, and his resurrection points to our life forever with God. In that, the gospel, we are saved. And if we know Jesus Christ, we know that truth, and we can proclaim it, the mighty work of God and how he saves his people. We have that speech given to us by the Spirit. Which means, guess what? There's nothing stopping you from proclaiming this. But you. You are not lacking anything to declare his gospel to people. There's nothing stopping you but us being hesitant. Because when we see and read in Acts 2, when we know the truth, of the power of the Holy Spirit that it brings to us, we see that this fulfills that promise of Acts 1.8. When Jesus looks upon his disciples and says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and all of Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And we, sitting now, after the, the Acts is closed, now, almost 2,000 years later, look around and says, the ends of the earth have not been yet been reached. And so we have that same power, the same presence, and the same speech given to us to fulfill God's purpose that the world hears of who he is, that the world knows who Jesus is. That when you think about that commandment in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples of all nations, we can now fulfill it. Why? Because we have God's presence and his power working in us through the Holy Spirit so we can fulfill his purpose, which is that all nations come to know who he is. All people have a chance to respond and hear who he is. This is what happens. When the Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit bestows God's power for God's purpose. God's power, His presence, His purpose. Do we live in light of these? Do you go about your day-to-day knowing that God has given you everything you need to live a life of godliness and to serve Him? Do you live your life in light of the reality that God is always with you, no matter what? And do you plan your life in light of the purpose God has called all of us to, to make him known to the end of the earth? That's the call we see in Acts 2. That this is what the Spirit enables, this is what uh, Christ has commanded his believers to do, and now We're given everything we need to do it. Because the Holy Spirit bestows God's power for God's presence, purpose. Would you join me in prayer? Dear Father, thank you so much for your word. The word that we can read and know who you are, the word that we can respond to. But most importantly, Lord, we thank you for the salvation that you gave us through Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the spirit that applies that salvation to us it makes it gives us the power to live for you, to, the power to respond to the gospel, the power to communicate to other people your truths and your glory and your mighty works. So thank you, Lord. Lord, I pray for each one of us that we can live in light of your power, of your presence, and of your purpose. 
that we never forget them. That we never make plans or organize our life, our life apart from them. That we know we have you and that we have been called to follow. We can respond with all of who we are. We thank you so much that it's not up to our own strength or our own power or our own fittedness, but you and your power and your presence and what you give us to accomplish it. Lord, we love you. We seek you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A while Becky was reading scripture, I noticed that she had this.